normal to see candles. It is normal to see posters. It is normal to see balloons. It is normal to see flowers honoring the lives of black and brown youth that have lost their lives to a bullet. That was Edna Chavez, a high school student from South Los Angeles, speaking at this spring's March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C. Like many of the speakers on that day, she has a deeply personal and tragic relationship with gun violence. Her brother had been killed by a hail of bullets in his own neighborhood. But while most of the speeches that day focused on a single tragic event, particularly the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, that had occurred the prior month, Edna's experience with violence is much more insidious and endemic, and much more common. I have lived in South LA my entire life and have lost many loved ones to gun violence. This is normal. Normal to the point that I've learned to duck from bullets before I learned how to read. On today's episode of Bending the Arc, violence. What we think it means, why we're wrong, and its long-term life-altering impacts on the millions of young people who experience it and feel it day after day after day. Welcome to the July episode of Bending the Arc, the podcast from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. I'm your host, Dan Traglia. I'm sorry that we missed June after a bike accident took me out of commission for a couple of weeks. And yes, to answer that question that everyone has asked me, I was wearing a helmet. But we're back with monthly broadcasts, with even more frequent episodes likely to come in the fall. Today we're talking about violence with Alana Peck, one of our producers and podcast fellows, and Dr. Kaylin Flynn, a newly minted PhD from Penn School of Social Policy and Practice, who's recently left for a great job and greener pastures. Today's episode, you'll see, is longer than most that we're going to put together here at Bending the Arc, and there are a couple of reasons for that. First, this is more than just an episode of its own. Kaylin's work advances our understanding of people's relationships with their environments, how words and biases shape policy and funding in ways that fundamentally alter an individual's life, experiences, and decisions. It's almost a meta-episode, and that we'll use this frame as a way to understand social policy topics that we discuss in the future. Second, Kaylin's going to relay experiences from a group of young Philadelphians that participated in her groundbreaking research. She tells them so well, and you can't help but be affected by them. So we want you to hear them in a relatively unedited form. Okay, on to the episode. We're talking about why Occam's razor, that's the simplest solution, in this case, more law enforcement and harsher penalties, isn't the right one. For one, Data tell us that this approach doesn't work because, among other reasons, violent crime is hyper-local and driven by neighborhood conditions and dynamics. John Pfaff, a Fordham University law professor, told The Atlantic that grand comprehensive theories are likely not too trustworthy right now. What is happening is local, he argued. When we're talking local, we're not talking about the city level. You have to look deeper. When Edna was talking about her neighborhood, she wasn't talking about Los Angeles as a whole— she was talking about the few block space in which she lives and spends most of her time. The LA Times has a fantastic interactive map to demonstrate this, and we'll link to it in our show notes. LA's Chesterfield Square neighborhood had a violent crime rate of more than 200 violent crimes per 10,000 residents, while at the same time, more than 60 neighborhoods in LA had rates below 10 per 10,000 people. And that's not just Los Angeles. The same is true in Philadelphia, Chicago, New York City, and Washington, D.C. And even more to the point, as Professor Pfaff writes, those, quote, at-risk blocks remained fairly constant over time, 
And while we're talking about violent crime at this particular moment, the evidence from decades of research from William Julius Wilson, Raj Chetty, and many others shows that this is true when we're thinking about poverty, unemployment, and much, much more, that poor neighborhood conditions are too often constant. So we're going to dig deeper on violence and these root causes with our producer and podcast fellow, Alana Peck. Alana is a joint master's in social work and master's in education student here at Penn. She spent her career in public education, working with youth who live the experiences that Edna described and thinking about how to address those root causes in more holistic ways. By focusing on individual instances of violence or even patterns of person-on-person violence, it seems like we're wearing blinders that exclude many of the historical and contemporary conditions that play a large and causal role here. So Alana had a chance to sit down with Dr. Kaylin Flynn, a recent graduate of our school's social policy and practice, and a new assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Let's start with a clip of her talking about how she sees those external, sometimes invisible forces as violence themselves. Kept thinking, how do I make a theoretical model that'll allow me to show how these different forms of violence really impact development across the lifespan? The important part of thinking about violence in this developmental frame was really thinking about how we can address it. If we're going to prevent interpersonal violence, you're going to have to take a step back. The Braffenbrenner framework really gives you a way to wrap your head around that. One of the most important things I think that came out of my work is this broader conceptualization of violence. So Alana, Kaylin referred a few times there to this human development model by Yuri Braffenbrenner. Can you tell us a little about it? Okay, so I'm going to assume, Dan, that you haven't recently taken a social work theory class. So here's an easy way to understand this. So picture a target sign. In the center, the bullseye, that is where the individual is. So place yourself there, and now let's look outward. All of the rings that are surrounding you represent the environment. And we use these rings to organize all of the people, structures, norms, etc. that make up an environment or the context in which a person exists. So now I want you to imagine stepping out of the bullseye into that first ring. That's where you find all of the individuals, places, or institutions that you interact with directly. It's helpful to think of examples from your own life when you're picturing this. So for me, this space includes my family, SP2, and the Graduate School of Education, and also you, Dan. Oh, I'm glad to be part of that circle. Yeah. Now, if we take a few more steps outside of this ring, that's where we start to find institutions or people who are impacting our lives, but from more of a distance. So think of people, places, or organizations that you're not directly connected to. Maybe you've never even met these individuals or visited these places, but they still have an impact on you and also your life. So again, for me, the president of Penn, Amy Gutman, and the Philadelphia mayor's office, they immediately come to mind as people or organizations that would exist here. Never personally interacted with President Gutman or with the mayor's office, but they make decisions that directly impact my life. And what do we see if we move outside of that? So now, if we walk to the very edge of the target sign, this outermost ring, this is where we encounter the much less tangible. So we're not seeing people or even institutions here. Instead, we're noticing really, really broad concepts like social norms or biases that shape our world. So, like, for an example that works for everybody, let's think of fashion. It is an unspoken rule that you do not wear flippers or flip-flops to a wedding. Hold on. I need to make a note. (laughs) This is unspoken rules like this are examples of norms that might exist within the outermost ring, right? There are things that we don't 
necessarily say out loud, but everybody just knows and agrees to these things. Uh, if we think much more broadly, you can also find examples of unconscious bias, racism, sexism. These are all powerful influences in the way that we interact with our world. They're hidden forces. They're not tangible. They're not quantifiable, but they're still there and they still impact an individual. So that all makes a lot of sense. Right. And it's often hard to see the direct ways in which these kind of outside forces, particularly ones on the edge, influence our behaviors. But I think we all know that at some level, sometimes very consciously, and we use that to our advantage. So, for example, we tell older children to set an example for their younger siblings or I wear a helmet when I ride a bike always, but especially with my son. And I make sure he knows that I'm wearing one because I know he's taking his cues from me. But this works in much more subliminal ways. And I think you can speak to that much more directly from your work over the last five years in California, Minnesota, and now here in Philly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, like you mentioned, my background is in education. And I think um, we can use a Bronfenbrenner model to consider high school dropout, right? So usually we think of dropping out as an individual failure. But in reality, it's an indicator of a larger systemic problem. Some people might be surprised that the decision to leave school without a diploma is not a simple choice, right? 15-year-old doesn't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I think I'm done with my education. This isn't a decision that occurs only in the center of the bullseye. Instead, let's think of dropping out as part of a process that starts long before high school even begins. And a lot of factors contribute to this process. So again, let's center ourselves in the middle of the bullseye individual makes a choice, right? But if we move run one ring out from the center, that's where we would find messages from teachers, family members, community members, like this school isn't a good fit for you, or you don't really belong here, or even things that are um, much less tangible, like never being called on in class or being bullied. All of those factor into the decision to leave. And then if we take another step farther outward, decisions about curriculum, the structure of the school day, which in some cases might cause a student to have to decide between attending math class or caring for a sick parent or a sibling who needs childcare, those also factor into an individual's choice. And then finally, if we go to the outermost ring where we know that norms and bias uh, live, bias can influence student choice as well. So, for example, research suggests that black students are disproportionately disciplined in school relative to their white peers. Suspensions and detentions are frequently used as indicators of dropout risk. So although it's difficult to draw a straight line from racial bias to student dropout, there is definitely a connection there. So, Alana, how would Dr. Flynn think about these as forms of violence? To her, violence is more than the person-on-person -person violence that happens in the innermost circle. And she uses that bullseye model we discussed earlier to categorize and organize it. We tend to, as a society, really focus on that inner circle, the interpersonal, which in a way limits the impact that our interventions have. We often treat interpersonal violence as though it's a disease in and of itself, so we can treat it and get rid of it. But we don't necessarily take into account the outer circles of that Brenner model. You know, in those outer circles, we see different forms of violence more theoretical for sure, uh, but still impacts the individual. So, you know, if we go out a step, um, we'll see the structural levels of violence. And if we go ev out even further, you see the symbolic. By defining violence through those concentric circles, Kaylin's framework allows us to see the big picture, both the symptoms and the causes. 
Here's how Kaylin defines structural violence. You know, for the structural, you see it really in like social services, neighborhoods, um, places that are really where you spend time, their environmental context. Structural violence is about the way that we fund things, the way resources are allocated. Our policies and societies, society as a whole, kind of delegates worth through funding things like funding libraries, defunding libraries, funding schools, defunding schools. Certainly there are no, there's no shortage of examples of structural violence. Let's take an example that's been dominating the headlines a little bit more recently, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Tell me more about how that's a creation of structural violence. Sure. So here are just the basics that you need to know kind of as a refresher. Uh, in 2013, the city of Flint decided it was going to separate itself from its contract with the city of Detroit in order to save close to $200 million. Um, completion of this new pipeline that they were going to construct was supposed to take up to two years. So after the city discontinued their contract with Detroit Water and Sewage Department, they uh, switched the city of Flint over to the Flint River as a temporary water source. Despite initial concerns about the safety and quality of the water, city officials assured residents of Flint over and over that the water was fine. And we all know how this story ends. An early report describes it like this. In the meantime, to save money, they switched to the Flint River water. At the time, the state agency told Flint it didn't have to add an anti-corrosive agent to the water. They were willing to wait a year to see whether the water was safe. All the while, highly corrosive river water flowed through the city's lead pipes, leaching lead and other dangerous metals into the water supply. And what came out of the tap in many homes was toxic. So beginning in 2014, residents began to complain about the quality of the water. And then in 2015, Flint was found to be in violation of the Safe Water Drinking Act, as levels of harmful chemicals in the water tested off the charts. Now it's 2018 in the city, which has a poverty rate of about 40%, and is also has a predominantly black population, still doesn't have access to clean drinking water. What's important to understand here is that this damage didn't occur as a result of a mistake. City officials made a conscious choice to switch over to the river, wait two years for results, and ignore early complaints from community members. It's difficult to pin this decision on an individual as well. Instead, a system is responsible for this crisis. In this case, because savings related to water costs were prioritized over the health of an entire community. I want to bring us back to our model from earlier. So let's put ourselves back into the target sign. This decision was made in those middle rings, but it has a direct impact on the well-being of the individual who's located at the center in the bullseye. It's also reasonable to expect that levels of contaminants in the water in Flint have had an impact on the choices that individuals are making in the community on a daily basis. And the second is symbolic violence, which sounds even more theoretical than what we were just talking about. I want to help us get our heads around it. The concept comes from the late French sociologist and philosopher Pierre Bourdieu, who spent much of his career writing about the dynamics of power, in particular how power is expressed and imposed in subtle ways. The symbolic violence is really about how we talk, um, how we assign worth through what we, how we talk about neighborhoods, when we frame a neighborhood as good or bad, um, Racism writ large, sexism, classism, all of that fits in the symbolic. It's kind of how we internalize our worth. 
Uh, one of the great examples of symbolic violence that was actually used by um, Bordeaux in, his, in coming up with his theory is about how women see their worth reflected in society, right? So as a woman, I might make less than a man, um, and that might just be the norm for me. Bourdieu argued, correctly I'd say, that cultural roles are self-reinforcing. They become accepted by both those with the power and those without it. And efforts to disrupt that status quo are not only controversial, but seen as upsetting a natural and correct homeostasis. During Barack Obama's presidency, you could see this pretty clearly through the lens of race relations or LGBTQ rights were efforts and regulations to protect people that had been discriminated against in all kinds of explicit and implicit ways were seen by a large portion of this country as both an attack on American culture and the persecution of the groups that have traditionally held power. It's also pretty clearly demonstrated in the Donald Trump era as both a candidate and as a president. You see this most evidently, but certainly not exclusively, in how he talks about immigrants Let's listen to this clip from his campaign kickoff speech in June of 2015. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Now remember, that's how he introduced himself to the public. I suppose this is after his introduction to the political scene was as the most prominent and maybe last prominent birther conspiracy theorist. And since coming into office, he's been using the same disparaging and generally inaccurate language, but he now does it with the endorsement and credibility of the office of the president and with the power that comes with it. He has produced immigrant crime lists, which include both events that are not crimes and crimes committed by people that are not immigrants and created an office of the Department of Homeland Security called Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement. These actions collectively highlight and magnify, again, often inaccurately, the actions of immigrants and lead casual observers to believe that this group is committing crime at inordinately high rates, even though immigrants have historically committed crimes at lower rates than the rest of the population. So what's important to understand here and what's placing this type of violence out in that outer edge outermost ring of the target sign that we described before is the fact that President Trump is shaping the conversations that we're now having about immigration and specifically the type of people who are immigrating to the United States. I think it's safe to say that right now we're having an argument about race without ever explicitly mentioning race. And so one last thing that we need to think about is the effect that this type of symbolic violence is having in our communities. And we can see that, um, you know, we've been having conversations about taking away green cards from people or even potentially revoking citizenship, which would have been totally unheard of in conversations about immigration a few years ago. And then, um, you know, if we move back into the center of the target sign, we can see that symbolic violence is really creating space for interpersonal violence to occur. So just last week, there was a 91-year-old man who was attacked with a brick by a woman who told him to go back to his country, go back to Mexico. And all of this, although it can't be, you know, we can't draw causation from what Trump is saying, there definitely is a connection between this rhetoric and the types of violence that we're seeing in communities. These examples, which each illustrate a specific phenomenon, are a bit disconnected. 
So we talked to Dr. Flynn to better understand the connections between interpersonal, structural, and symbolic violence in her own backyard here in Philadelphia. She's been working with youth and adolescents who live with trauma and violence every day and has seen their experiences grossly misunderstood. People understood the extent to which kids interact with violence in the, throughout their day. They might understand the actual need they have for a lot of different other types of resources. And she was struck in particular by the overwhelming responses to victims of school shootings like the ones in Parkland, Florida, or Sandy Hook, while the Edna Chavez's of the world go largely ignored. I was immediately struck by the amount of resources that were flooded into that community. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking about all of the kids I've worked with throughout my career in juvenile justice and foster care um, and under-resourced areas throughout the entire country that didn't have those same resources given to them. And they experienced trauma at that level almost every day. Um, but, you know, they're just seen as resilient. What makes Kaylin's work unique is her focus on contextualizing adolescent experiences of violence and safety in the moment. To me, it's a really interesting age because I think you developmentally are starting to understand how your experience is different from other people's. And they're, especially the kids that I work with, travel all over Philadelphia. So they see different neighborhoods and they're at an age range where they can understand that their neighborhood is different from another neighborhood for a lot of diff- nuanced reasons, right? Um, not just race, but wealth and what that means for their identity and how they're thinking about themselves. So in order to contextualize the experiences of adolescents in Philadelphia, Kaylin used a mixed methods approach. She built on elements from a previous study conducted here at Penn called the Space-Time Adolescent Risk Survey. So I hooked up with Douglas Weeb, Dr. Weeb, who's in um, the Epidemiology Biostatistics Department here at Penn, uh, where they retrospectively asked youth who were um, shot or stabbed to go through the last 24 hours. And they kind of mapped the city thinking about where are the high risks, where are the mountains of risk. That's incredibly important. But what we didn't learn then was how experiencing violence, what that meant for someone in the moment. I mean, we know a lot, right? We know that long-term consequences of interpersonal violence and increased exposures to violence across the spectrum, theoretical spectrums that we've talked about, lead to things like increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of um, hypertension or obesity. And I actually saw that in some of my young adults. We know these things are coming out of this long-term exposures, not just to interpersonal violence, but to structural violence um, as well. But we don't necessarily understand the mechanisms through which that was happening. To collect these data in real time, she had to innovate. She gave her participants heart rate monitors and GPS locators to track their movements and physiological reactions to their environments. And she conducted family histories and frequent interviews with her participants to understand their lives as they were unfolding. Listen to her explain what she did, and what you hear is how much of the story of each person's life would be missed by excluding any one piece. The reason that all of the methods were important is because, again, I really wanted to capture these forms of violence outside of the interpersonal. Heart rate enabled me to see physiological impact that all of these forms of violence have on a person in their everyday Tracking where they went in the city allowed me to also see kind of where they went, how they thought about space, how they navigated the city, um, which is important when you think about safety. Heart rate was also important because 
we know from the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey and research that has come out of that work that, which is, you know, a retrospective look at adults of how they, what they have experienced and how that's impacted their health overall, that exposure to violence in the long term does have health impacts in adulthood. We don't necessarily understand what that looks like. The other qualitative tools that I used, for example, family histories, um, the daily interviews I did with their heart rate, the baseline interview, and the walking interview were all really important to capture this holistic frame. Combining these methodologies allows us to see things we would never have been able to piece together through a retrospective study, in part because, as Kaylin explains, Many of the youth she spoke with did not have conscious or effective reactions to what was happening in their surroundings. I had youth who would say, you know, I hear gunshots in my neighborhood every day, but like, it doesn't bother me, whatever. And then we'd look at their heart rate and like, well, you know, what were you doing at 1 p.m.? Your heart rate would shot up from a baseline of 80 up to 140 and then right back down. And in talking about what was happening in their neighborhood, someone got shot right in front of their house, but they had no effective reaction to it, so they didn't even understand that their body had reacted. The intersection of interpersonal, structural, and symbolic violence came through in the stories of all of her participants, but we're going to listen to Kaylin describe the life of one woman who she refers to by the pseudonym of Tasha. Please note there are descriptions of sexual assault and domestic abuse in this story. Tasha's narrative, while it is very illustrative of how these forms of violence intersect to impact a youth. Um, Her narrative was not necessarily unique, but I do think it provides a really clear example and a lot of different systems of how they interacted to impact her as a person. Tasha, from a young age, experienced sexual abuse and interpersonal violence in the home. When she was very young, she quite literally saved her mother's life. She had to smash a beer bottle over a partner's head um, to stop him from shoving her mother out a window, and she was under the age of 10. She also experienced sexual abuse by a family member within her early childhood years. She did not do well in school, which shouldn't be surprising considering the amount of violence, interpersonal violence she was experiencing at home. She was living in neighborhoods that were had high rates of community violence, and she would go to school and not be able to concentrate. Fast forward, and she is a freshman in high school, and she's in an overcrowded classroom, and the teacher is cursing at the students. And she said, why would I stay? I can't learn here, and they don't think I care, so I might as well prove them right. And she dropped out of school at that point. And then um, Sasha became a mother. When her child was about six months old, he suffered very damaging physical abuse at the hands of the father. But because of the way our child welfare system is structured, uh, mothers are typically investigated first before fathers. So Chasha lost custody of her child. She had horrible interactions with her caseworker. She said she felt like if she called to ask how her son was doing, she was told she was being crazy and asking too many questions. And if she then backed off and didn't ask how her son was doing, she would get told that she didn't care. Since then, Tasha Tasha did get um, custody of her child back. Um, about a year after he was taken from her, the father also abused another child of his. And the special victims unit made the connection between the two cases. 
in the time since then, she has had another child, but has really internalized this idea that she's not a good mother, even though from my experience in talking to her, she would give up anything for her children. Listen to Kaylin describe in very explicit terms how violence in the outer rings of the target sign had a direct impact on Tasha's life, both in the moment and in her future. Tasha, at every step of the way, had all these not just interpersonal violence experiences, right, but had the structural working um, and the symbolic really intersecting there. Her experience in schools wasn't just about the interpersonal violence she was experiencing at home or in the community or even within the school. She often talked about not even being able to use a bathroom because fights would break out in the bathroom so teachers wouldn't allow them to go in between classes. She was in overcrowded classrooms, which means the teachers within those schools were really under-resourced and overworked. It's difficult to spend the amount of time you want to spend with the student or really go deeper when you have a classroom of 40 kids who probably may all be experiencing forms of violence. It's no secret that infrastructure in Philadelphia's public schools are seriously lacking. After a story broke a few months ago about high levels of asbestos in an elementary school, the state has committed over $17 million for cleanup. But consider the impact that these conditions have already had on the youth who participated in this study. Youth like Tasha. In my mind, it adds a new layer of urgency to this process because the buildings in which we're educating students are a factor in the dropout process described earlier. And school wasn't the only system in which Tasha felt the impact of structural violence. She spent time in juvenile justice. She spent time within child welfare as a mother and as a child. Um, And within those systems, nobody necessarily stopped from her perspective. No one stopped and asked her what was happening. Why was she there? The structural violence that's present there is really within the funding of the systems, the under-resourced social workers, the under-resourced teachers. In terms of the symbolic, all of her experiences have led her to believe that she is a bad mother, that she can't learn. She's not she's not good at school. And I can say everyone I interacted with who knew her said she was, you know, smart as a whip, focused and goal driven. Um, But that's not her self-perception. And Alana, certainly one thing we heard from Kaylin was that these experiences don't just affect them in the long term, but these internalizations are then passed down to siblings and even their own children. If you're internalizing these power dynamics as a child, they just become more real, more tangible and concrete as an adult, and then they're passed down. You're kind of inadvertently telling your children the things that you believe are true from the time that you were a child. So over time, these ideas become self-reinforcing, which is truly horrifying, especially because I think we like to believe that youth is full of possibility and opportunity. Kaylin's research shows this is not true for everyone. And I think from our conversation earlier, we can say that these notions are likely not coming from nowhere. They're picking up cues that they won't have the same chances as a kid in, let's say, a higher-end area like Rittenhouse Square. Is that true? Are we telling them to dream small? That's a point that Kaylin emphasized several times, that we as a society play a major role in determining who is deserving or undeserving of resources. Adolescence is a period that youth begin to not only understand, but also internalize the differences between themselves their neighborhoods, their communities, and others. So, you know, if we're calling a neighborhood bad, if we all kind of think that and reflect that, and not just in our language, but then in how we invest in that neighborhood, Um, whether real estate comes in, whether new business comes in, whether there's jobs, summer work for kids, um, whether their schools are funded, all of that is really 
kind of dictated by the symbolic. So that's leading into the structural. And when you have less opportunities, you automatically are going to have more interpersonal violence. Maybe not automatically, but you will have more interpersonal violence because there's a sense of competition there. And there's just higher risk factors around, right? So if there's not well-lit streets, if there's a lot of alleys, there's a lot of abandoned lots, there might be more bars or alcohol outlets. All of these things have been proven to show that they're a higher risk for interpersonal violence. This language, good neighborhood, bad neighborhood, it can really impact the types of resources or opportunities that are available for the individuals living there. The neighborhoods where Kaylin conducted her research, these are parts of Philly with a serious lack of resources. You won't find much employment opportunities. Many of the schools are in bad shape or suffer from declining enrollment. I don't think we can say that language or labels are the only factor at play here, but it is a force that we should not ignore. And one thing I've heard Kaylin talk about is how our participants internalize these narratives in their interactions with the police. Yes, and what I found especially interesting is that these messages are somewhat contrary to what I was expecting. One of the big examples of symbolic violence that I use that comes out of my work are the conversations I had with my male participants, who were mostly young African-American males. I did have some who identified as Puerto Rican. A lot of them had internalized a self-blame for the interactions they had with police. I use my research a lot as a teaching tool. So one of the things I often tell my students is, you know, I relay that to them, that, you know, these young people have this perception that they look like criminals. So I often say to my students, thinking about that, what do you do to change that internalization? Because that's what's deep. That's what's systemic. And that's what the symbolic violence is, right? That's that lasts for generations. And I think when we talk about solutions to violence, it's important to think about those bigger symbolic and structural questions and not just focus on interpersonal violence. So what I'm hearing is an immense complexity in how we need to think about these hyper-localized social problems, like violence for sure, but also education, employment, and the list goes on. So shifting our focus to how we take these data and put them into action, we need a much more comprehensive approach to tackling each of these problems. Where do we start? Mm-hmm. So what it really boils down to is complex problems call for complex solutions. It's important to recognize that violence and in individual experiences on a daily basis is not just fights in the street. It could also be physiological and psychological impacts of exposure to interpersonal violence, decades-old textbooks in a neighborhood school, or a lack of broadband internet access, or even the additional hurdles associated with buying a house as a person of color. And remember, these types of violence create space or opportunities for interpersonal violence to occur. So one place to start is breaking down barriers between agencies. A youth is involved in foster care and their parents in criminal justice and they're in the public school system. They're not a siloed individual for each of those things. They're not compartmentalizing their feelings or their worth based on each of those systems, right? They're experiencing all of them at once. I think to really address these larger forms of violence that we've been talking about, systems would need to work together. So what Kaylin is suggesting is we need to find a way for high schools to connect with the mayor's office, the district attorney's office, Department of Human Services, local homeless shelters, even local nonprofit agencies, and they all need to share a similar agenda. And that's great for streamlining public administration towards solving a common problem, but it's far from a comprehensive solution. And there's no one solution here. The problem is just too large. 
One of the main takeaways from my conversation with Kaylin was that aggregation matters, that small solutions, when compiled and replicated, can make meaningful differences. Let me give an example of what I mean. Let's circle back to Edna's speech from the March for Our Lives. She calls for a more holistic response to the violence in her neighborhood, offering these alternative policy solutions. Fun mentorship programs, mental health resources, paid internship and job opportunities. My brother, like many others, would have benefited from this. And building from what you've said and what Kaylin and Edna are saying, this isn't to say that the programs that exist now aren't working. It seems more like they're a drop in the bucket. And we really can't deem programs a failure when they're not given adequate time or adequate resources to see the impacts we're hoping for. We need to make sure that we're addressing not just the symptom, but the wound that's causing it. So we're talking about major social problems that are too overwhelming and so far too challenging for even city, state, and federal governments in the private sector to meaningfully overcome. So for the average person in listening to this on their commute, what can they do? Well, I asked Kaylin about that, and here's what she had to say. I think taking the time to like take a step back and think about where are the other instances of violence where kids are, kids are experiencing, and how is that coming through the front door of the school, and then how does that influence the climate and the environment that the students are in is really important. I love Kaylin's suggestions because of their relative simplicity. But I would also add, a step you could take as soon as this episode ends is committing yourself to letting individuals you interact with on a daily basis, especially if they're young people. Letting them know that they're seen and that they are valued. Reaffirming the dignity and worth of those around you. The rest will follow. I think that's an important point, and I also think that follows pretty well on our last episode, which was about homelessness and community. And one of the most meaningful things that we heard from the people that we talked to that were living in shelters was just about the dignity of humanity, that they could contribute in the same ways and they needed the same supports as you or me or anyone else out there. So Alana, this is an overwhelming topic to fully understand, let alone address, and thank you for walking us through it. And for those of you listening, Challenge yourself to think about your world through the lens of that target side. What is your environment like? How has it helped you succeed or held you back? And think about how that same situation looks for the people you interact with or even just the people you hear about on the news. When we're talking about youth surrounded by violence or homeless mothers, as we did in our last show, how have their lives been shaped by the people they know and the message that we, even inadvertently, are sending them? That's all for this episode of Bending the Arc. Go to our website, www.sp2, that's the number two, dot U-P-E-N-N dot E-D-U slash Bending the Arc to find some of the resources we mentioned in this show. And you can find back episodes and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Send us an email at bendingthearc at sp2 dot U-P-E-N-N dot E-D-U with your thoughts on the show or a topic you'd like to hear us cover. This episode was produced by myself, Alana Peck, Emily Berkowitz, and Blanca Castro. And congratulations to Alana on a great debut episode. And thank you to Kaylin Flynn, now Dr. Kaylin Flynn, for talking with us and for the incredible and important work she's doing. We certainly miss her here. We'll be back with a new episode in August, and then we'll pick up the pace once the school year rolls around in September. 
Bye-bye for now.